No challenges remaining live from Mason, Ohio, once again, which I always feel like is the ancestral homeland it's of true. this podcast. I'm Ben no Rothenberg, argument. joined by Courtney Wayne. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing well. The Olympics just finished. Yes, it did. Let's talk about that. Highlights, big picture. Overall, what's, what are you going to remember? What's the takeaway from this Rio 2016 tennis competition? Uh, Monica Puig. Yeah. I think um, to me still, I mean, obviously I haven't been following every single tennis event, but, or not, sorry, tennis event, but any, every single Olympic event. But I, I, as far as I know, no one has pointed out to me a gold medal result that is as surprising as, as what Monica Puig did here. It's, it's absolutely phenomenal. So I think that that is a big one, um, especially to see whether she can carry it forward. But just even if she can't, even that she was can't, just an insane one week in a bottle. If you could like... Just have that one week in your career. I mean, that's like an incredible thing to even think about. It's a freaking Disney movie, you know. I mean, like it's it's um, that's incredible to me. Um, and then obviously just all the great stuff with Del Potro, just being kind of the heart and soul in a lot of ways of the tennis event. Um, I think those are the two the two names and the two runs that I think I'll remember. I can't argue with it at all. And I remember it. Shout out to our couple episodes ago guest host Ashish Malhotra who singled out Monica Puig in his analysis. Somebody, and she was in D.C. talking about how much she loved the Olympics. And and that sort of seemed, I don't know if you want to credit it all to Olympic magic, but it seems like, or Olympic determination. But she summoned her best in a way. And we had talked about her on Take a Number pretty recently, too. Bump, bump, bump. I mean, we did, just to take all the credit for this from from us and guests. Where's our parade, Puerto Rico? Exactly. (laughs) Where's our tweet, Lynn Emanuel? I want tickets. Anyways, go Exactly. Give us tickets, Lynn. But yeah, she did step up to this. And I think she is the big story because she, it wasn't a draw that broke. It wasn't like, with all due respect, and there's not going to be much due respect in the rest of the sentence, but to like Irani and uh, Carlos Suarez Navarro, who won big hardcore titles in the Middle East this year, they did mostly through broken draws. Monica Puig like knocked down the doors herself. She blew away Garbini Muguruza, the French Open champion, one and one. Garbini didn't play great, but still Monica crushed her. Uh, then she beat Petra Kvitova, a two-time Wimbledon champion who's playing well to get to the semifinals. And then she beat Monica, uh, sorry, she beat Angelique Kerber, who's the clear number two in the world, uh, possibly number one soon this year, we don't know, and the Australian Open champion. I mean, she beat as tough of a road as she could have gotten once Serena went out. Serena did go out. We haven't mentioned Serena yet, but Serena went out, and Monica took such full advantage and really just sort of carpe diemed in this really emphatic way and she wasn't and she just seemed so in control of it that's what struck me really during the gold medal match monica's a player we think of as being relatively feisty and demonstrative but she was just like all business this was like game face puig in this very cool very impressive way that just when i saw that like when she went up i think like 3-0 in the third maybe i was like oh she means business like she is not gonna get overhyped for this one she has this thing under control not hyperventilating at all when she could be. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that what I will kind of take away from it, I mean, all those things, absolutely. I think the only time she finally let loose was after that insane point where she had that sliding splits uh, volley, splits volley with her a... back to the net that Angie shouldn't have muffed the next shot, but she did, and she won the point, and it was ridiculous. And that's when she kind of let loose, kind of like, 
I mean, uh, figuratively, kind of like the shirt ripping, like, I, this is me. Like, you know what Baroque I mean? Baroque style. Yeah, Baroque style, like, rawr, like, hulked it, you know? Like, and that was pretty cool to see. Because in that moment, I was like, okay, just wanted to make sure that that was there. Yeah. Because if you're going through this and you're just got, you genuinely have ice in your veins, I'm a little bit worried because I think you might be a crazy person. Yeah. But, <laughs> like, that was kind of that humanness. And that's what we've always seen from, from Monica. So to see that was great. But yeah, I mean, even just recounting her run through, which was phenomenal. I mean, also in there is Pavlyuchenkova, who's played really, really yeah. well this Women year. Zikamund, which is the match that you think she's going to hit. trap up. match. That's the trap match, right? You just blew away Muguruza. You you got, you know, and you beat Kvitova. You're supposed to beat Sigamund. you're supposed to beat Sigamund. You have Kvitova, like whatever. But like, that's the one where you're like, eh, and she just took care of business. And people forget, she went into the semifinals, didn't drop a set. And even though she went three sets against Kvitova in the semis and then uh, Kerber in the final, those were three set matches that she ran away with. Like, she was the better player. Yeah. Um, undoubtedly, throughout both of no those matches. There was no winning ugly for Puig. No, the, and it wasn't like she lucked out. I mean, I mean, Kerber still made her win it. I mean, Kerber played well. She didn't play badly in that third set. The first set she didn't even play badly, although it was clear that something was bothering her, like, early in the first set. A lot of people didn't... I think like on um, say on Bravo, no lower back on okay. Bravo. Um, I know that that Renee Stubbs started to talk about it towards the end of the first set. But if you go back and look at my live vlog uh, and my tweets, I started tweeting about it two three in the first set. There was the, a lot of weird movement. So she had a stiff back, got a little bit of work done after the first set, and then played better in the second and third set. Um, can I just give a sidebar plug to your live vlogging? Because, like, Thanks. you're really good at it, and you do it a lot now. I do it a lot. You do it a lot, <laughs> and it's, like, this cool thing. If you guys are, like, especially once, I guess, Asia rolls, or U.S. Open will happen, but in Asia, if you guys are, like, at an office or some odd time, and you don't have time to follow tennis, like... Courtney's got you back, Oh, yo. thanks. No, that's kind of the point. We try to create these live vlogs so that it's like a one-stop shop because not everybody uses Twitter, not everybody's on Facebook, not everybody can watch and stream and matches. And it's archived, too. And it's archived, so at the end of the day, if you want to know that what happened that day or in those matches, you can read them. Anyways, but yeah, so, um, you know, and there's a level of detail that's in them that is pretty... Um, I usually think about the fact that I'm writing it to other journalists, like if other journalists are looking and back they, afterwards. And they are also, like exhaustive and exhausting. <laughs> like, I've done live vlogs, too, uh, for, I haven't done them in a while, but when I've done them for kind of tests, like, they're intense. Yeah. They're intense. It's tough. I mean, like, when I did the um, the gold medal and bronze medal matches, um, it, you know, both of them went the full three sets. Both of them were incredibly tense because you had Kerber and or, uh, Keys and Kvitova in the other one, which didn't, you didn't really know which way it was going to go. And, yeah, you're watching point by point because you have to be able to this is now derailing, but you have to be able to describe, be prepared to describe any point when it's over, like yeah. be able to write it down. And you don't know what's a significant point while you're going through it. And, but the problem is, is unlike when we write our stories, you don't have time to go back no. and then reconstruct it. You have to like reconstruct it from memory there. So it's kind of, you come up with tricks, but yeah. Let's finish up with Puy, just to, mm -hmm. to close this part. What is this, you think this means for her going forward? Like I think you said at the beginning, even if she doesn't follow up with this, even if she... If there's a worst case scenario for her, I think there's more potential than this. But even if she like masseuse and this is this sure. one, people might call it fluke or out of nowhere result that she doesn't really back up. And it's like, hey, remember when Monica Puig won the Olympics in 2016? That was weird and didn't lead to anything. Mm -hmm. Even if that's the case, well done, Monica Puig. Seriously. You got a gold medal. 
your step for life, first ever Puerto Rican woman to win any medal, first ever Puerto Rican to win a gold medal ever. Uh, interesting article I think I tweeted in the Washington Post about like, the history of Puerto Rico. I didn't realize that Puerto Rico had its own Olympic team until 2004. We lost them in basketball, and I got really confused. <laughs> I was like, wait, we lost to Puerto I remember Rico? that. Yeah, we lost yeah. Puerto, U.S. lost Puerto Rico. It was a big upset, and I was like, it's like losing to New Jersey. That's confusing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but anyway, so read about that. It's it's interesting story. There's stuff about Gigi Fernandez, another tennis player who was a double specialist who played for, represented the U.S. and got some resentment for that because, which I don't Puerto think is fair. Born. Right, Puerto Rican born and still yeah. calls herself Puerto Rican and everything, but I don't think it's fair. Which is she, why just she to know. She would have had no doubles partner. Exactly. She wouldn't have had any doubles partner. She wouldn't have had any success. She won gold medals with Mary Jo Fernandez yeah. as part of the U.S. team. But it is one of those things where it's like, just like for accuracy, I kept seeing tweets where it's like, the first Puerto Rican to win. It's like, no. It's like first awkward first representing Puerto Rico. to represent Puerto Rico. Too, I, called it, I think I like settled on like Puerto Rico's first gold. Yeah, it brings home that. the first gold to Puerto Rico. Yeah. It was another way. So but many, the, in the interest so of accuracy, awkward, yeah. but like, you know, I just wanted to point it's that like out. one of those things where it's like, like a Jason Only Collins thing where it. you're like first man in a big four team yeah. sport. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like active All the player. caveats. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, so Monica checks out. So anyway, so back to Monica legacy-wise. Even if she does nothing, I think we agree. Great for you. If this is the chair, if this is the peak of your career, good peak for Pika. For sure. If it's not, if, is it? Is it though? Do you think? Do you think there's reason to expect her to use this as a springboard? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I tweeted um, after or actually during, as it looked like it was very clear that she was going to be winning that gold medal match. Like, you know, Monica, you can't drop a fire album out of nowhere and then not take it on tour. And I love the response to that because there's a singer called Just Monica. Oh yeah, <laughs> so it was like. That's <laughs> Did, Mon- did Monica put out an album? Is the voice still mine? Is the voice still mine? Is she and Brandy cool? What's going on? Did she get over her trauma? Um, yeah, so so that's kind of how I feel about it. Is that like because again, what was so amazing about this, and and we see this in pockets on the tour, right? Where you see a younger player or a player ranked out at the top thirty or twenty five or something who puts together a match or a string of matches, two or three matches, where they play peak tennis of their tennis. And you see it, and it's so exciting. You're like, oh my gosh, please do this all the time. Yours, Yanovitz, uh, Ben Wapair. Yeah, great examples. You know, even a Nick Kyrgios, who obviously is very good, but or Gael. Uh, just whatever it is where they, they put it together, and, and just for a split second, you see what this what this athlete is, is capable like of. Like a Vinci. A Vinci, right, exactly. Um, and you're just like, oh my gosh, like, please do that all the time. Because if you do that all the time, that changes the landscape of the sport. And I think that that's what Puig didn't just do in a single match and didn't just do it in a set. She did it over six matches against the game's elite competition and destroyed everybody. And in doing so, not just did that, but you had people watching it who were like, oh my God, I love how she plays. The backhand was beautiful. It was like a freaking clinic. She was tearing Kerber apart with it. Um, the ser- I mean, the, the serve was effective. The depth on her forehand was ridiculous. The returning... All of it was tremendous. And so you just want so badly for that not to be this little capsule. And so you want to see it on tour. But that becomes the question. It's like, you know, the the overarching question throughout the week was like, how is Monica Puig doing this? And is it the Olympic fire? Is it that she can't match that when she's playing out on court nine against the number 60 player in the world? Because again, Monica Puig was chasing qualification. She was not, eventually she kind of was comfortably in once we saw all the withdrawals and things like that. But at the time, like she was playing the French Open thinking that her her qualification was still in doubt and playing under that pressure. 
So she she is usually stuck on the outer courts. And maybe yeah. this then goes to our point that we made during the um, the uh, take a number. That she's a big match player that doesn't get to play on big courts. That's exactly what we were saying. This was her first chance, and she really rose to the And she owned it. And so maybe now that she's an Olympic champion, she would put on bigger courts, even against like lower-level competition, and she will rise to the occasion. I don't know. We've seen this, and I think it kind of fits for all of the Saviano kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's four of them still playing, uh, and she's one of the cohort. Her, Jeannie Bouchard, Laura Robson, and Sloane Stevens, and they've all kind of weirdly are all sort of the same type of they're all best on big stages. Mm-hmm. And she's going to get more of those, so hopefully that springboards. I don't think it's out of nowhere, that because she was top 20 in the race this year. I mean, yeah, she, no, she, had, she had been, yes. she had made the Sydney final. Like we said, she was rising up. Yeah. This is obviously this ahead is of best, schedule. Even before Rio, this was the best season of her career, yeah. uh, by far. She's only a couple of, of places out from having a career high ranking. She's career high 21, she's at 23 now. So, you know, it's been an incredible season. And yeah, I totally agree with you because I was getting really annoyed by people saying like, oh, you know, this has come out, you know, she's not that good of a player. I'm like, she's a very good player. She just, as we had said before, never had the signature win, never had the big stage result that the other three um, women that you mentioned that were under Saviano's did. So now she has. Yeah, now she has. So, but... um, I, I I just think it's been cool. It's a very cool result. It's very cool to see... And we talk, obviously, we talked a bunch in the last year about Olympic tennis and, you know, the worth of it and if it, the relevance of it and if it's everything. I think it's very cool to see all the videos that came out of Puerto Rico, like all mm. the watch parties. And I think in a, in a similar way to invoke Masu again and with Gonzalez and Masu, those were the yeah. first two ever gold medals for Chile. I think still the only two that they've ever won were those two tennis golds in Athens. And so I think that's, that's sort of like the peak possibility for... Olympic tennis to get to get to an emerging market. Yeah. The way that I think uh, also in Athens that the Chinese players won doubles yeah. gold that out sprung, of nowhere. That sprung everything. Right. All of Chinese huge. tennis is based off of it, for developing countries. Olympic mm-hmm. success I think is huge, and it just gets on the consciousness. And it was very cool. All of that, and yeah, people. And I think people outside of tennis resonate to the story. We saw a lot of mainstream sort of sports Twitter accounts tuning into this match. Oh gosh, yeah. more than any match that didn't include Serena winning Wimbledon probably this year. So it's a nice moment that way. Let me kind of still. And I th- and I yeah. think too. I mean, I I talked to you about this offline. I mean, I I think that I get really excited specifically about Olympic tennis when this type of result happens. When because we kind of know at this point that for the most part the slams have been contested by the people that we expect to, to contest them. The major tournaments, whether it's the Masters tournaments on the men's side or the premieres on the women's side, are contested by the women that and men that you would expect to win them. Mm-hmm. So to me, like when a Monica Puig wins, or like I was, I think I was saying last night at dinner, I was like, I have no problem with Marty Fish Olympic, you know, silver medalist. Sure, and it came out of nowhere at that point. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Or James Blake Olympic bronze medalist, but. He lost in the bronze medal match. Oh. But that's okay. Or It would have been nice. It would have been nice. <laughs> to me, he's a bronze medalist. But, you know, like, or even just, like, you know, taking it out of singles. Of Barbara Stritzova, you know, yeah. now an Olympic bronze medalist. Silent H is getting silver in, uh, in London. Exactly. You know, those sorts of results. Like, I'm like, that's really, Tamea Vachinsky, Olympic silver medalist. Like, you know, like, that's all, that's all gravy to me. I mean, I really like when players who maybe aren't going to uh, maybe the odds are stacked against them uh, with respect to breaking through at the at what are tennis's big like you know the tour's biggest events tennis's typical big events can kind of make a name for themselves there. I'm all for it. Like, yeah. it, but then again, I'm probably like super old school. Like, I'm perfectly fine with the Olympics being pure amateur. 
like because it was always kind of cool. It was like all these kind of people you didn't know, like competing, yeah. you know, for purity or whatever. But yeah, so the Puig result is like kind of right up my alley. I, I think it should be everybody's alley. And yeah, it was it was solid times. Uh, other women's singles results, which is wrap up that draw. Kerber, I don't think there's much to talk about Kerber. I think Kerber sort of is who she thought we she yeah. we she is who we thought she was, and Puig did not let her off the hook. Yeah. Um, she got she, beat by somebody who she treated. held her she held her seed. She got to the final. Yeah. She played great, and she lost to a player who played their best. Yeah. That's fine. Uh, otherwise, I have thoughts on the rest of the draw. I know you're making a, a Yo Play medal for. <laughs> I am. You going actually to do have it. to do this. Oh no, now. I am. I am. I am totally giving Madison Keys a Yo Play medal. Expl- um, explain your Yo Play medal. See, I didn't uh, know. Stance. Oh, my stance. Okay, I don't. Feel, I don't like the bronze medal match. I don't like bronze medal matches in any of the sports. Uh, well, I don't know. I'm not going to say that because I don't know how every other sport operates. But some sports have them, and some don't. Some have them, some don't. And tennis didn't used to have it. Right. There used to be two bronze medals. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I or would prefer semifinal losers. Right. Both semifinal losers. I would personally prefer that. I think that like I don't. I just for me, maybe this. Well, first of all, I just think that you look. You made the medal rounds. You lost, you get the bronze. Like, and two people who made the same level or got as far in the competition as each other shouldn't have to duke it out for like the consolation consolation prize. I don't know. I just I don't. I can, I can see either way. Just because I feel like every just for like lack of you know medal table inflation and things like that. I think every sport should give out three medals because you don't give out a fourth place bronze medal in like uh, hundred but people, meters. But there are ties. But they, but they, so there are three there are silver th- medals, like Leclo and Phelps and the other guy tied. That's true. And they had three silver medals. Yeah. You know, they like, have like spares lying around for these occasions. Yeah, we had, yeah, Pete Holterman and I were talking about this. Like, do they just keep them around? I'm like, I'm sure they have like a stockpile of each. And then they have to like radio in at the end of the day and be like, yeah, so tomorrow a runner is going to have to bring two more silvers because we had to give out three today. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so I'm, I'm okay with it generally. I think the, bron- the bronze medal match is rough. I remember um, Tommy Haas once sort of like schadenfreudely laughing about the fact that in Sydney, when he won his silver, that Roger Federer lost the bronze match. So Madison's in good company there. Yeah, um, Novak lost the bronze medal match in London. Yeah, I mean, I, Big players have done big players. Rafa lost one today. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that, it, but to me, like part of it is also as a spectator, and I don't know if this is because I, like this is me being like a regular spectator or me being a little bit too close because I'm a reporter in this sport and know these players, to watch that bronze medal match, both of them, or all of them actually, for the doubles as well, and the mixed, and the guys, and everybody, and to just watch this match and know that one of those players or one of those teams is going to go home with nothing is like watching lambs to slaughter. Like, I just am nauseous the whole time. Like, I am not enjoying this in any way, shape, isn't, or form. Isn't that just sports, though? No, it's not. It's just not. I mean, it, it's like, you know, Madison got to the same level, got to the same portion of competition as Petra Kvitova. Rafa got to the same portion of the competition as Kay. Like, I don't think that they should have to, like, duke it out, like, just to, to because we just don't want to give another person a medal. Just don't do that. On top of that, like, the competition is grinding enough. Like, it, it just take the match off of the table, give them the bronze. It's fine. At least the bronze match is best of three for the men. I'll say that in terms of grinding. If they made them play best of five or bronze, <laughs> that'd be horrific. Sure. Uh, before we leave the women's draw, we should talk about Serena. Serena lost to Alina Svitolina. This came out of nowhere, pretty much. She hadn't been super dominant in her first two rounds against Gavrilova and whoever else she played. Cornet. Cornet, right. <laughs> that Cornet match was tough. Like That yeah. was a classic Cornet-Serena match, except for that Serena won. <laughs> 
I think I saw this like a little bit on Twitter, but I kept you know, laughing about this idea of like, you know, like God, like the gods come down to you and say, so we are going to make you the greatest of all time. You are going to win 24 major titles. You're going to break all these records. You're going to be, people will see you and think that tennis is you. You will get yes queened around the world. Yes. But you're going to be owned by this little French girl. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you take the deal? I think you take the deal, but it's a tough one. It's a tough one to swallow. So she gets through that, Courtney, and then she loses in straight sets to Alina Svitolina, a player who she stomped with ease at the French Open, a player who has was in the sort of next-gen conversation but hadn't had many remarkable results lately. How? What? Uh, she's not. She's not 100. Yeah. And I think that that's the biggest thing. I think everybody saw it, particularly in that second set. I think it was the three-all game, um, and uh, she had five double faults, three in succession to get broken, and then she just was gone from there. I mean, she was spinning the ball in. I mean, the, the double fault yeah. misses were terrible. So she did pull out of, of Montreal with a shoulder with shoulder inflammation. Um, so it, that that did seem to be what it was. Yeah. Um, on top of that, that court was just. Not, yeah, it just it just wasn't great for her, and, and and what she had to do to beat Gavrilova and to beat Cornet, I think that you know, kind of when we talk about the tag teaming, you know, those were even though those were especially Cornet because Cornet hits those all those loopy yeah. balls, and that one point against Gavrilova, yeah. that, that was sort of went viral on Twitter. You're just like what is going on? Like here? neither of them could hit through. They were both getting to the ball, like in their feet planted, or in in Gavrilova's case, leaping off the ground <laughs> as per usual, and just hitting the ball as hard as they could, and it was doing nothing. They yeah. were just like landing no punches. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's it, that was the court. And yeah. It was it made for a unique Olympics. I I don't, I don't think Beijing or Athens were that slow. No, it, it just seemed really slow. And I it, what it, that's for me personally, that's not my favorite speed of court. No. For a hard court, I, I don't like it that slow. I like I mean, if you're gonna make it slow, do the thing that India Wells does, which is like you make it slow, but you play with super light balls, and then nobody can tr- control the freaking thing. Um, but, that's also not great. You know, it's not great, but the ball does fly through the air. I mean, like once it hits the ground. Then, then, then and it's slow down. Thin desert air and a exactly. little bit. Exactly, there's a lot going on yeah. there. But, but this was a slow court with with heavy balls, and it uh, was, it was tough. It was tough for a lot of the players. One of the slowest hard courts I've ever seen, and it was never more apparent. Segue than in the men's final, <laughs> which lasted just over four hours, with Andy Murray getting his second gold medal in men's singles uh, after losing in both doubles, but he won men's singles uh, like he was supposed to do, I guess. Once again, like Wimbledon. Once Djokovic went out, Murray became the favorite, and Murray took care of business. I just see him solidifying more and more as, you know, if I was writing a power rankings column, his segment would be like, hasn't been much movement there in three years. I would have stopped writing this column. (laughs) But he's getting closer. I mean, as Djokovic slips again, Murray is not slipping, and Murray hasn't lost anybody but Djokovic since uh, Madrid, I think. And he's just been super solid and taking care of business and looks like a really, really good player. That's, and now that level is, like, good enough. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing with Murray that has been so impressive, you know, yeah, since Madrid is just that, you know, we're so used to the Andy Murray roller coaster, and let's not pretend that that roller coaster still doesn't exist. Oh, no. But the base level of what is, you know, his, his kind of B game um, is so much higher now yeah. than it used to be, like you know, uh, a year ago at this time, or even pre back surgery. So you know, I mean, he's just a better player. He's moving so much better. He's so much more consistent. Um, you know, the service the serve can still be a little bit wonky, but yeah, I mean, he he did what he was expected to do. Like once everything, uh, yeah, once Novak went out and 
you know, even today, you know, in the final against El Potro, it was a, it probably shouldn't have got, been as hairy as it was. Um, Don't, El Potro can be as hairy as he wants to be. He's a very hairy man. Adore him. <laughs> but yeah, it, it probably didn't need to be that tight um, and go, you know, that deep into the fourth. But um at the same time, there was never a sense, at least, I don't know, for me watching it, it was still a sense of inevitability. I never thought Andy was really in trouble. I never thought that he was going to lose that no. match, even if it was going to go five. It was just like, well, it's going to happen, you know. But but that is not because I thought, because of what I was seeing on this day made me think that he was that good. It's more just the body of work over the last few months of just like, no, he's not going to give this match away. He's fine. And you a know? bridge too far maybe for Del Potro, yeah. who just had played such a big match and I was if he had won the title it would have been a real debate for me which was a better story uh him or Puig I, I think Puig is probably still the better story but Delpo is incredible this was such a great great thing for Delpo and I saw someone tweet side by side the photos of the podiums from London and Rio which both had Andy Murray and Del Potro in there and if you saw those podiums it was like oh those must be like the two most consistent dominant players in men's tennis <laughs> yeah no <laughs> But, so <laughs> but you know, other, any other sport you would see that if that was like back to back, you know, any other Olympic sport. But Del Potro did did huge things, and he has. I I hope even again, even with Puig, even if like Puig, even if it doesn't lead to an immediate, you know, top ten position for life for him, just the fact that he had this run, it's very cool. It's very cool, and. and you know the worry. You know the worry or whatever is, and again, it's always a selfish thing, right? It's that selfish thing exactly. The same as with Puig of like Delpo, you cannot drop this fire seventh album, you know, uh, out of nowhere and then not take it on tour. Like we got to see this forehand more often. We got to see this just you being you on a tennis court. Like we you know? said in the Djokovic loss, he's been part timer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, hopefully the U.S. Open gives him a wild card, and hopefully he's there, and hopefully he's able to play well and and feel inspired and and do what he was able to do in Rio but uh but but just who knows with with Juan Martin but it it was lovely to see let's pause on that briefly I saw when I tweeted something the first time I think I tweeted about it about Del Potro should get this US of Walker there should be no doubt and I said it before the Olympics started uh, I got some pushback from American coaches and people in American tennis saying no it's very important for American players to get that <laughs> is there any case for not giving Juan Martín Del Potro, 2009 champion and 2016 Olympic silver medalist, fan favorite, who could like anchor a night session, headline a night session, is there any case for not giving him a wild card and making him play qualities? What I would love to see is for um, those people who advocate for these wild cards to go to American players, that they're American players who deserve it. I would like to see that list. Please provide for me the list of players that you believe should receive a wild card ahead of Juan Martín Del Potro, and then I'll make that decision. I'm perfectly happy to take, to, to take that into consideration. But if your list is laughable, prepare to be laughed at. No. Because then at that point, prepare to just rec- be, you know, recognize that you're not actually thinking objectively at all, like that, that you're thinking from a completely homeward, you know, biased basis, which if that's fine, then okay, then accept that that's where you're coming from. But I, I can't think of a situation of, of why you would give, you know, a bunch of different names pop into my mind that are out of the top 150 of the guys who... Even inside top 150. Sure. Yeah. But, like, that, that you would give a wild card to over over him. I, I think that's a complete and utter joke at this point. Sidebar on that, I think the USTA, I don't like the reciprocal program for wild cards. 
I think, and I said this before in that yeah, same discussion this has been on your people. Position. Well, just I think that for American tennis, those two extra spots at the U.S. Open are worth more than the one-off spots at the French Open and U.S. Open. I think that's where players get to break through and have like get to play in front of their at their home slam. I think that's worth more than getting some player who, if they're good enough to get the wild card, probably has a decent shot of qualifying at Melbourne or French Open anyway. I just, I just, I just think those spots are more valuable, and also. The other mandated one I think they need to get rid of is this one that is the challenger points one for mm. the U.S. Open specifically. I under, for the other turn for the other slams, okay. For U.S. Open though, when people have chances to play in Washington and Atlanta in Stanford, you shouldn't reward them for playing down mm. and, at the challengers. Okay. Or 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 if you're gonna do that, count points from ATP and WTA events in there too. Fair enough. I, I, just I, don't I, like, I don't like that it locks them up. I value the French Open re- reciprocity a little bit more because I do think that like when you look back at players like a Luisa Trico who got that uh, a couple years ago or Townsend. Um, Taylor Townsend or who's the young guy who really loves playing on clay? For Tangelo. For Tangelo. Yeah. He got it this year. Yeah. Um, I think that that's like having that – I love the, I like that playoff system of like you play for it, you get it, and we give you this one spot. So I, I and value – And it's clay. And it's clay and it's Europe and it gives you a tent pole to know that you are going to be playing the French Open and then you can go and play. Brian Baker also got that wild card. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I value that one. The, the Australian Open one, yes, I would agree. Like – one for one there. It's a hard court event. It, it's you know I don't see how that's a development. And I also, and I also just think selfishly, having those French, Australian and French players in the U.S. Open draw adds nothing to the U.S. Open. From an American Aussies, point of maybe. view, I mean, but like, real talk, does having like a Duckworth in the draw help quack, quack. the U.S. Open? No, I don't know. I don't think, I don't so. think so. I don't, unless they confuse, they think that he might be an American because James Duckworth. <laughs> it sounds American enough. Yeah. Does it? Quack quack quack, Mr. Duckworth. <laughs> I love my duck so much. <laughs> Although it's a really dark movie, we talked about it recently it in my it's rants. Super but dark. like, people forget that that movie opens with like a DUI. Yeah. No. How, I mean. And then the D and the drunk driver is then sent to. If you go back children. and look at most '80s movies that like I know, I definitely grew up with. '90s, but yes. Okay. How the duck was '90s? Yeah, definitely. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. If you go, but even when I go back and look at '80s movies, I'm like, I can't believe that I like this was a lot. Like these are dirty. Like yeah. movies were way raunchier. Like back in the eight, like you know the the sexual especially sexually explicit jokes. You're like, I can't believe I watched that when I was ten. Over your head at that point. I, yeah, it totally is. But at that same time, I totally remember those scenes yeah. and being like, no, nah, I don't really understand what's going on here. And then you rewatch, you're like, oh my you're god, like, good god, like Revenge of the this Nerds. On VHS. Like I yeah. used to watch Revenge of the Nerds all the time. And then it wasn't until like maybe like my twelfth, fifteenth viewing, and I was like, oh. <laughs> so, anyways. speaking of Revenge of the Nerds, there's no good segue here. Uh, but other Ben's results, Rafa. I mean, R- Rafa gets. Uh, we'll start with singles. I know, but, but yeah. I mean, even just making, you know, the bronze medal match, putting himself into position there. Great match versus Delpo. Great Semis. match against Delpo, and I think that that's going to be, you know, will go down as, as, you know, one of the best matches of the year, um, without a doubt. It was incredible. Even if it was best of three. Even if it was especially because it was best of three. Um, yeah, so, so you know, and, you know, for somebody who... Didn't know if he was going to be able to even play, and then he goes and plays three events, and you know, didn't know if his wrist was going to hold up, which I don't really understand because he was practicing with Andy Murray in Mallorca. It's not like he was like playing Xbox on the couch all day. Like it, clearly, he was practicing and practicing really hard. I saw no, all these pictures and stuff. Not that Xbox couldn't strain your wrist. Uh, this, I, trust me, I know. <laughs> trust me, I know. Both of them, Xbox, PS2, uh, PS4. Anyways, but yeah, like he was working, and I think that all of that like training kind of. Sh- sh- 
you know, showed there wasn't a ton of rust at all, yeah. um, which was really, really encouraging and encouraging for the rest of the, the summer hard courts. And, um, you know, his trainer, his, his um, part of his team is already here in Cincinnati. And so he'll be, he'll be headed this way, which is great. And, um, yeah, I was incredibly impressed by what I saw from Rafa, massively so. Other person I, I want to give a shout-out to in men's singles is Steve Johnson, who oh, was up a Stevie break 4-3 in the third on eventual gold medalist Andy Murray. Again, not one of the most brightest. I thought he was going to be able to close it out, but a huge accomplishment for him. And just in general, a really, and we switched the men's doubles, so we have much to say about that, but a really good, a shockingly good tournament for American men mm-hmm. in Rio, who went there without their without their top player, John Isner, without their top doubles team, who was really their only metal hope people thought, I think people really thought, yeah. uh, in the Bryan brothers. Uh, Sam Query had played well at Wimbledon, made quarterfinals, he wasn't there either. And yet American men got on the podium uh, three times. Yeah. In, two in mixed and one in men's doubles with Johnson and Stock. So that's pretty pretty darn impressive from the off-denigrated uh, American men's tennis world. I mean, look, I mean, I think that if you walk away and... Steve Johnson, Olympic bronze medalist. Rajiv Ram, Olympic bronze medalist. That's like that's Silver. pretty cool. Yeah. Silver medalist. Yeah. yeah sorry, Rajiv. Uh, yeah. That that's pretty a okay. That's pretty good. Uh, so uh, so it was good to see Rafa win in doubles. He's a very underrated doubles player. Like, every time I've seen him play at Indian Wells, I'm always like, he's so good. If he like, yeah. kind of goes to doubles too, and you see this in the Olympics a lot. Like if the top singles guy play doubles and play dedicatedly, they can. Win the things. Can, can, we, can we get also give a little bit of a shout out to Team Romania? That was really hard to watch, you oh, guys. Merger finish. Oh, that was really hard to watch. That was an audible choke, audible, so loud, <laughs> and so it was happening, and you knew it. Then you knew the minute that Mark Lopez threw it up, you're like, oh nope, nope, nope. He's gonna duff it. Audible choke. I was thinking like the. Mrs. Doubtfire across the restaurant scene. <laughs> <laughs> choking. Yep. And you just wanted to run there and have your mask run. fall just off. Just wanted and, to be there. Yeah. 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 So. But, oh, well. Uh, women's doubles. Also, inter- uh, Williams has obviously lost, which disrupted things. But not a surprising result, uh, which is when looking at the champions, I think really the only gold medal winner who's a shock is Puig. Uh, but Makarovesnina, a very solid, established team uh, from Russia. And nice to see um, – or nice uh, – nice made up the word, but sort of interesting to see a Russian – team yeah. win after everything that's been going on with Russia. The Olympics they had to get reinstated by the IF, ITF to put a vote of confidence in their system, in their anti-doping policies to reinstate the Russian athletes, which all the players that I talked to seem totally fine with. They, they, they don't... Yeah, no they, one had a problem There's nothing... There's no Lily Kinging yeah. in tennis, um, put it very mildly. And the Russians win, and that was good to see. And, and Bachinsky hingis I mean, <laughs> Switzerland... I was thinking as I was watching that, like, Switzerland's sliding doors of like what could have happened in this Olympics is so different like they I think we were talking I was talking to Ricky Diamond I'm making like over-unders for the year just like it's like jokes like over-under like 3.5 medals for Switzerland in Rio and like it was debatable they yeah. had so many good players with Vavrinka, uh, Bencic and Federer all not posting up could have been different but they still got a silver Hingis should be very proud of that because I only I only watched the gold medal match and I was kind of confused how they got there. <laughs> it's very true. I mean, it was very clear that that was like what their fourth match, before fifth match together, fourth match together. Ever, yeah, yeah, ever. And uh, Hingis in Montreal had been asked about you know who she was going to pair up with, and she said, yeah, it looks like it's going to be Tamea, and 
you know, I don't know, maybe there, maybe we'll find some chemistry. But she was very kind of like, I don't know. Like, it, she wasn't particularly confident about it. That Tamea, says Tamea doesn't play doubles. Tamea doesn't play doubles. But it says, uh, an inc- I mean, if you were going to partner with a player who doesn't play doubles for doubles and you're a doubles specialist, I think you do pick Tamea simply because she has all, every single shot. You know what I mean? Like, she's not just a baseliner with no net game. She yeah. knows. And she has good court sense and good court IQ. But there was a lot of miscommunication. A lot miscommunication. Of like, mine, and yours, mine, yours. Mine, yours. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it, hey, at the end of the day, Martina comes back. She does. I mean, she that was a hole in her resume. She had never won an Olympic medal, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so she gets that silver. Massive. I don't think she even played in Olympics. Yeah, she did. She did in Sydney. Maybe. Okay. She might have played one. Or maybe Atlanta. Even. One or two, maybe. But yeah. I don't know. But uh, but yeah, then Bachinski, awesome as well. Um, so yeah. Uh, while we're mentioning Hingis on this doubles section, uh, Santina. It's broken up. They have. Uh, are you surprised? It's the number one team in the race. Yeah, number one team up. in the race. Um, they say they're still going to play Singapore together. Yes, that, that they have committed um, and said that, that that is the case. Uh, they released a statement saying that. Um, am I surprised? No, not really. Um, I think that both of them are players who, especially given what they did in 2015, um, are good enough to recognize when something's not working. And I think that the string of losses, because, again, these are doubles specialists. They are not making money in singles and also playing doubles. I mean, there comes a point where a business decision has to be made where, like, you don't have a diversified portfolio. So if the only thing that you're investing in is starting to not yield returns, then you have to figure out what you're going to do. And you have to change something up because otherwise you're just letting it ride, you know. So so not entirely surprised. they had some, they took some bad losses, especially the French Open yeah. loss stands out. They lost to Krejcikova and Siniakova. Siniakova, yeah. is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, they're, they're definitely bad losses, and and so you know haven't won a title since Rome. Okay, I believe so. Yeah, so you know the split is happening. Um, uh, Sonia will play with Barbara Stritzova, which I love, and uh, Martina Hingis will play with Coco Vandeweghe, which will be interesting because it's almost kind of like a. A beta Sonia, like big forehand, like you know, like bigger kinda, serve, bigger serve. Um, you know, so so it'll be an inter- that'll be an interesting combination, and that's a good, that's a great pairing for Coco, simply because she can't be full time with Beth. So and she was playing with uh, Annalena a lot of times, and just kind of you know whoever was around. So both our new be, partners are lucky to have them. Yeah. So I don't think anybody's saying, oh, you know, Sonia and or Martina forgot how to tennis. Yeah. Because I mean, like, even when they flopped at the French Open, they both made the mixed final. Yeah. So they're they're doing okay. But, um, uh, but th- before we move away from doubles, yeah. thoughts, Ben, on orbital bone gate. Oh gosh. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, good segue. Uh, so for those of you who didn't see it in uh, the semifinals, the Swiss were down match point in the second set. I think at five four in the second set. And to the, the silent ages. To the silent ages. Lovachka Rodechka had match point, and uh, match point was going along, and I think Rodechka hit up a, a lob, or a, a sort of high ball, and Martina hit an overhead, and it hit Lovachka, who was fairly close to the net, but not, they weren't like right next to her, but it hit her in the face. She went down hard. Um, she played on, but her vision was blurry, and it was a long medical timeout and everything. And she eventually had a broken orbital bone in her face, which <laughs> and is they just. Lost. And I'm sure that's like, if you get any sort of head injury, which is a broken yeah. orbital, which is like, for those of you who don't know, it's like your bone under your eye socket. Um, yeah, that's rough. <laughs> and then they lose the bronze match, too. <laughs> and all the Czechs like, did so well at the Olympics. Radeczka and Stepanik won the bronze in mixed, uh, Stritzova and Sefra won the bronze in 
in women's doubles, and so everybody left the Olympics with something. Andrea Lomachko left with a broken orbital bone. It's, it's rough. A I don't think that Martina should be blamed for any of this. I wouldn't no. villain, villainize her for no. it. I mean, it was a regulation play. I don't even think she was necessarily, if you watch the replay, it didn't look like she was even targeting Lomachko. If she wanted to, she could have, going at the player is fair, but she was just like knocking it hard into what was the more open court. Martina, Martina's good, but she's not good enough to target someone's orbital bone. Uh, so <laughs> you look skeptical, but yeah. I mean, do, you, do, you, do you have any? No, other I, don't, I don't. I don't. No, I don't blame. <laughs> I was just. I was just making a joke. I'm like, you know, it's, it is kind of weird for her to be like, oh, she's so precise that she can do anything with the ball, but she can't like kill a person, avoid, avoid hitting a very tall blonde Czech woman who's standing at the net. But I agree. I mean, I think the ball was coming at you know from the left side of the the court, which is where. Uh, Lucy was, and she was hitting it into the right She'd side. Be of the aiming court. generally where she yeah, was. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I I saw the. It sounded war, you know when I first saw it on Twitter. It was like, you know, Martina just killed Lavochkova, and then but when I got the video, I was like, eh. for it to happen on actual match point though, that's yeah. what makes it like of all time like tennis drama. People, you know, Liesel Huber's gotten hit in the throat and things like that, and couple times. I'm thinking of all these incidents that all involve Lethal Huber getting hit, always on some sort of retribution. Uh, and this one just seemed like just bad luck. Yeah, I no, I, th- I think it was bad luck, and it just, but it just sucks. I mean, you know, like, I mean, yeah, to be one point away, and then you lose, and then they barely were able to one put up a One point away from a guaranteed gold or silver, and then yeah. your face breaks. Yeah, and, and, and then have to play your own countrywomen in the bronze medal match. It was an all-Czech bronze medal match. And uh, Radechka also had some scheduling issues because she was in the mix, and so she was completely wiped for that match. And they, you know, lost fairly, fairly quickly, fairly easily to uh, Safarova and, and Stritseva. So it just, it, it's, it's, you know. But, but good for Safarova, Stritseva, and Kvitova, who we didn't really go into much, who all win bronze medals, and that's those are all veteran players who yeah. hadn't won a medal before. So for them to pick up them as sort of lifetime achievement awards to go with their many Fed Cups, I think is is cool. And the last thing we haven't talked about is mixed. Which was the most delightful moment of the Olympics for me, probably even more than Puig, although Puig was just Puig was on paper, obviously, in those, but like the sheer joy was Venus, Ugh, obviously, winning loves. that semi after Rohan Bopana played some about five minutes of the worst tennis you'll ever see in that tie break and <laughs> I, completely I implode. It. Oh, you should watch yeah. it. It was bad. But Venus was good and Rohan was awful. And uh, Venus Williams, who I'll be curious to see what she says, like uh, Rajiv says, he'll probably be more open about it. Or he might be more open about it. I doubt these two people had talked to each other before this week. Yeah. Like, I don't know how they, I doubt they know each other. But <laughs> Venus gets a silver medal eventually with Rajiv Ram. And after losing first round in both women's singles and women's doubles, totally redeemed her she Olympics. looked, it had to be crushing with how much she talked about Rio. And was sick. Yeah, she had been sick and she had timed it. She seemed better by the end. And for her to get this chance to play for a gold medal again, uh, and what, Almost certainly will be her last Olympics, never say never, but almost and certainly. And did lead 6-3 in the tiebreak over Not getting into that Bethany part yet. and Sock. But just how awesome was it for Venus and that reaction after she won was the best. And it kept going for like a minute after yeah, she sat down. Yeah, I mean, down. I, what I, I kind of kept saying, because a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, like, Venus and Rajiv don't look very happy on the medal stand, and oh, Kerber doesn't look very happy on the medal stand, and, you know, all, it's like... Even Del Potro didn't look Del Potro, happy. it's like, you guys, the celebration about winning a silver medal happens the day before when you win the semifinal. And that's the celebration that everybody should remember, which was like Kerber going to the ground, Delpo kissing the Rio, um, you know, Venus for a minute just looking absolutely flabbergasted by what, you know, what had happened. That's, you know, they just freaking lost a match. I mean, like, you know, like normally in tennis, unless it's a Grand Slam final, you're off the court and in the locker room. Like, you don't have to stand there, um, you know, after losing a match. So, 
uh, yeah, it was it was super cool. If you haven't, definitely pull up the video of the celebration. But um, my and if you do watch it, my, my personal favorite moment is Ven like on match point they win. Venus is jumping up in the air, so happy, and she turns to Rajiv, and there's a moment on her face where it almost kind of looks like. I don't know you. <laughs> like, like, so I don't know. Let's hug. Do we, do we hug? Like, and she turns, like, she kind of looks at him. And then she, like, turns away and kind of continues to celebrate. And then it's a very awkward coming together of two people. Eventually they do hug. But it was kind of both of them being, like, Rajiv being, like, do I hug Venus And Rajiv Williams? just looked in, for someone, Rajiv, of all the medalists, Rajiv Ram is by far the most unlikely, even more than Puig. Yeah. Uh, it's most unlikely. He wasn't even on the team in uh, two weeks out before the Bryans pulled out. And then even then, it wasn't clear if he'd be able to get in or when the, when the cutoffs work. I mean, that Davis Cup eligibility, never played Davis Cup, all these things. So it was fairly random that he got there. Even more random, he found himself playing mixed with Venus Williams. That was never a team that anybody saw. No, and then even when they came together, no one was like, oh, they're going to be great. Yeah. Uh, and they got through. And yeah, and he, he was just more like in quiet disbelief. But then they got to the gold medal match, lost to who I think was should have been the favorites to win the whole time, uh, Jack Sock yeah. and Bethany Maddock. They were the only team, I believe, where both players had previously won mixed slams on their own. And they played solid, and, and Sock played a really good tiebreak to win it. Yeah, he did. He did. They were down 3-6, and Sock reeled off three really, really, really good points to get things back. And, uh, and Venus had one look at one shot that maybe if she did it a little bit different, maybe yeah, they would have won it. One short ball she hit right at, Ve at yeah, Bethany. Yeah, she had kind of the open court, and she hit it right at Beth. Uh, but otherwise, it was a great tiebreak from, from, from two very experienced uh, mixed doubles players. So... You know, no shame in that. Venus Williams has five Olympic medals now, ties the record for the number of medals won by an Olympic, uh, a tennis medals won by, by a single person, which is pretty cool. I can't remember the woman's for, name. First in modern era to medal in all three events, oh, which only, cool. granted, mixed only been around yeah. since 2012, modern era. But yeah, so, so not so, so it was really it was really easy to figure out. Like nobody, <laughs> no, no, no one's done it. Uh, on sock, we were having this discussion before. Should Jack Sock be considered? I'll use this term, we can debate the term, but a double specialist. Right. Jack Sock's results in doubles are great. He's won two Grand Slams now, a Wimbledon men's with Pospisil. He won U.S. Open with Udan. He's now won two Olympic medals in doubles, golden mixed, bronze with Johnson. He's been a career high number six. He has won Indian Wells. He's won, I think, five or six other ATP Tour titles. And just generally been, Pospisil yep. Sock are a really good team. In singles, he's won one ATP title, Career high, I currently, he could move up, but he's currently like 22. Made one fourth round of the Grand Slam once. I think it's, it's he's definitely better at doubles and singles by a fair margin, results-wise. Results-wise, I mean, it's him, all relative. Does that make him doubles I mean, the, the point that I was making in the car was that it just depends on whether or not you, and this is just a discussion point. I don't really know how I come down on it, although I'll say what my gut instinct is, but um, that... When we say double specialist, is that a subjective term or an objective term? Right. right. So, and, and does double specialist just mean somebody who's bad at singles? Right. This which is, is what which this is part is, of what exactly. It means, which yeah. is the, which is the problem. It's like what are we just what are we saying? It's like is it like kind of you know the heap, you know where it's like you're you're kind of like not on you're not on 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 university track. We're sending you to vocational school, like sort of thing. <laughs> you know, like like to yeah. It sounds like really terrible, but. That is kind of... But more people should go to vocational school. It's so important. Yeah. It's so important. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. It's so important. I've I've had this rant before yeah. about how not everybody should go to university and that people... Anyways, um, Ben knows this because, yeah, 
road trips conversations happen. We have a lot of time. <laughs> but um, but yeah, but I, I mean, to me, he is not a double specialist. He's very good at doubles, and if anything, he's a mixed double specialist given his success rate in mixed yeah. uh, compared to even his doubles. Uh, but but yeah, like I mean, he's very good at it. He has an incredible success rate when he plays, and he's one of the most formidable people that that you would have to face across the net, regardless of partner. I think that's why you're kind of inclined to say double specialist because he's like hella good at doubles. Like he's a sought after uh, doubles player. Um, and could probably make a really good career, just like you, a Brian Brothers style like career. I think if you wanted you, to focus on it. I think your definite, your the verdict for me on whether or not you say double specialist, use that one term. It's just if you if it means to you is terrible at singles, then no. But if it means to you like is a markedly better doubles player than singles player, at this point you have to say yes for me. Like there's just and not that he can't change his status in his career by playing. He, I, he wants to phase out doubles, which. For me, like, why would you if you're winning so much? But I, but he's in the it's same camp maybe as someone like uh, people. I don't know what people say about like Caroline Garcia or Lenovich or, or maybe like Lisa compete. Raymond back in the day when Lisa Raymond used to be like a, a twenty through thirty-ish singles player for a long time. Even but this higher. is the question: like, what, it was both doubles number one. But you would never. You would. I don't think anybody would ever say that Lena Vesnina, even before she made the the, the Wimbledon semis, uh, was a double specialist. Um, I don't think you'd describe Makarova as a double specialist. Uh, I don't think that you could describe Karina Garcia, no. Garcia as a double specialist. I think that Christina Mladenovic was on the verge of it because she's had incredible success in mixed doubles. She's one of the most sought-after players um, in mixed doubles and is super good at doubles. BT Dubs, France, doubles had a terrible Olympics. Oh, France just had a, a rough go. And, and then Malfis was the one doing well, and then he blew <laughs> three oh, matches. and then he dove. Yeah, oh. he literally took a dive <laughs> against Kaini Shigori. Uh, yeah, so, so yeah, I think that it's an entirely subjective thing, and I, and I do think that for most people, when you say, it, like, double specialist is like a term of art, it, it's, it's, it's not literal, it's, it's defined by the culture or whatever. And so you consider it like a slur, or like a yeah, put down. Yeah, but that's what I mean, yeah. is that I think that when people do say double specialist, whether or not it's a slur or not a slur, it's meant as you're not a singles player. And so, in that way, and in I don't this, think and in, this, people, in this reputation, in this stigma, people have fairly or unfairly that all double specialists are failed singles players. Right. Yeah. Which is not always the case. Which it can be, always, but it's it not can always be, the but case. it's not always the case. Right. Yeah. So, there we go. Uh, that's pretty much it for Rio. We're in Cincinnati. I want to bring you first. Uh, we're not going to talk much about Cincinnati, but it's going to be a tournament that happens. Serena took a wild card. Uh, that's the main Cincinnati news, quote unquote. So that's a bit surprising after the injury concerns she had here. But the number one ranking is somewhat up in the air for the rest of the year. I don't know if that was a factor. We'll see what she says when she comes and talks to us eventually. Um, but Cincinnati is a tournament we know and like very well. One of the people, one of the things we know and like about it here is that the local press here, compared to some stops on tour, the best. not naming any names, a city in southeast Florida, uh, is, is really good. It's really good. And one of the people who makes it really good is Shannon Russell of the Cincinnati Inquirer, who I talked to for the podcast. I thought it would be interesting. We talked about all these people on the show who are like lifers in tennis, who like work in some way in tennis that makes it their whole thing. But a lot of the reality of how tennis is covered around the world and people, it's just people who poke in every once in a while. For one week a year when it rolls into town, they do it. And Shannon's been covering the Western and Southern Open for eight years. And I guess if you want to say something Yeah, no, I just, this. I think I, the thing about it is that, again, yeah, like Ben said, we normally interview, you know, international tennis writers, tennis writers who have you know are pretty well known yeah. you know they're kind of the people who commentators or commentators coaches or coaches, whoever etc et yeah. um, but what is so important are the pockets of local press because 
you know, I don't know if anybody saw, maybe this will be my rave later, but the John Oliver segment on journalism. But it's great. Yeah. And one of the really important things that it points out is that as, you know, there has become less and less, like, people going to, like, t- town hall meetings. Yeah. And, houses. like, state houses. Yeah. And doing, like, the, 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 the quote-unquote boring. No, but, but the nuts and bolts The stuff. nuts and bolts reporting that puts institutions in check. Yeah. Right. Like so. So you're reporting on the mayor's office of some small town. But because you're reporting on it, you make sure that there's no corruption. You're the one that's making sure that nobody's overreaching because yeah. you're there kind of policing it. And so with local press, when you have a good local press corps, not only do they do a great job of covering the event and they have, you know, all the connections and things. And it's very important to the tournament itself because yes. that's what drives tickets. Yes. Like and she mentions this in the interview, but like Pete Holderman who is the sort of press liaison here. He's a fancier title than that, but he's the guy who sort of runs the press room for Cincinnati. He is, he's, she's like his main like yes. sort of person. He, she's his point person. Like the local coverage matters a ton in terms of ticket sales, local support awareness, yep. more than as much as people, people talk about this with, in terms of like streaming. Like why isn't court, you know, seven streaming? Because we're here in Latvia and we want to watch Sevastava. Like, that does nothing for this tournament, putting out the money to do that. However, getting good coverage in the Cincinnati Inquirer does help the tournament's bottom line. Exactly. And there's a very concrete, real reality, and tournaments are local. And it's an important, and it's a really, really important thing for, I think, fans to understand kind of the tennis ecosystem. Yeah. And this is one, you know, like like Leighton Jin, who, who's down yeah. in, uh, in Indian Wells, Palm, Palm Desert, uh, he's, a, he's a great kind of resource yeah. there. You know, and 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 yeah, even like in New York, despite the fact that it's New York and it has they get the U- at the New York, uh, I'm sorry, at the New York Open, at the U.S. Open, it has obviously the world coming to it. But those local guys who sit on that first row, New York who, Post, New York, New York Post, Daily, Daily News, News yeah. all those guys, like they're the ones that are there all the time. They're the ones that are there when the roof goes up. They're the ones that get all of the like nitty gritty information. Who are there when like a line judge gets like gets arrested for murder. Or like if James Blake gets tackled by a cop, they're yeah. the ones that have the resources. I don't know who to talk to. I'm not from New York. Like, I, I, I pick I 911. Do you have like a press person? I PR, can, please? PR, please? Can you put PR me through tennis section? <laughs> yeah. Sports? Do you have a sports desk? <laughs> like, yeah. So, Man, anyways. Please hang up. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean that that's I, that's just to say like there's such an important Not part to say of the, the tennis, tennis all can't report, but yes, no, yeah, right, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know what I mean. Like it's it's you know, and uh, they're just such an important uh, a part of the tennis ecosystem. And Shannon is is one of our favorites. I always look forward to seeing her, and she works hella hard, and she's hella good at what she does. Here she so is. Very happy to be joined by Shannon Russell, a sports reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer, who is one of the friendly faces we see every August here in Mason. Shannon, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for inviting me. On the show. Yes, we just want to get a sense from you. You're somebody who, unlike us, me and Courtney, who host the show, and every, most people we have on the show as guests who sort of are full-time tennis people, whether they're players, coaches, whatever, who live, breathe tennis all the time. You're someone who pretty much is responsible for tennis 10 days out of the year, more or less. Is that this, right? So, so you write for the Cincinnati Inquirer. Correct. So you just mostly cover tennis when it rolls into Ohio each year. I how, do. How does, that, how does that process work? How did you get started? And how does that uh, how does that finding a way to parachute in more or less work for you? Well, I've been doing this for eight years. Um, my main beat is Xavier basketball. Mm-hmm. And that has, as most beats have, grown to a full year thing. So I'm constantly doing stuff with Xavier. But part of the beat when I inherited it is that Tennis was the other, the summer part. And so that's how I came to be here. Um, I also do other things throughout the year, Reds, Bengals, filling in. Yeah. Uh, 
flying pig, that kind of stuff, marathon. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, when I first started it, I didn't know, you know, most of the players. I knew the name players. Yeah. But anyone else that wasn't maybe in the top ten, no idea. Yeah. So it's been a long, long learning process. And now I feel super confident that I know who all these people are, even some of the people that are not high profile, because I watch the tournaments now on TV. Like It's fun for me to watch them and be like, oh, I know this person in this background, yeah. and not, you know, and be able to have that subplot as I'm moving along, so. On a similar sort of note, like how, when you're writing tennis articles this week, how much, when you're thinking of your readers, who are the Cincinnati Enquirer readers generally are, do you expect them to know much about tennis, or do you sort of start from scratch and sort of walk them through things that might seem basic? That's, that's actually a really good question because most it's a niche audience I find here. Um, so the people that are reading it are the people that follow tennis, but I also write it in a way that anyone picking up the paper would you know learn about these players and yeah. know more background and maybe not so much technical stuff, but more what have they been doing this year, what do they like to do, not when they're playing tennis. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago we had a, one of our staff writers do a big story on Milos Raonic's hair gel, yeah, and that was a, that was a big one where people like. I mean, that got a lot of clicks. It got very well online, and it was just a little offbeat. So I think we can do some of that fun stuff too. Yeah. Um, so we try to just combine it all. But but yeah, it's more for like kind of just anyone that picks up the paper should you know hopefully enjoy the read in reading it. I guess how do you how do you we are sort of around and figure out like for me being around I talk to people, I find out little stories or things like that. Do you, and I know you can obviously get some help from people working the tournament mm-hmm. who might point you in certain directions, things that might be interesting, but in general, how do you just sort of dive in? Because it's a lot at once. You know, there's a hundred players or yeah. so rolling into town this year, and you could go any sort of number of ways with it. How do you decide what are the best stories for for your readers? I think my secret weapon would be Pete Holterman. Yeah. I don't know if people listening yeah, he, to he who he is. he runs media here, yeah. Yes, yes. But Pete, and I go way back, he used to be a sports information director at Xavier for the women's basketball team, so I met him back then. Um, he also is friends with my college roommate's um, husband, so okay. we were in the same wedding together. So anyway, unnecessary information. But um, Pete comes into town, we, and we talk a lot, and we go over some of the different things that are going on because he's clearly – in tune all the time with tennis so he can tell me that you know so-and-so's got a new coach this week or so-and-so has been injured and this is what's going on you know so he's really very helpful to me in finding kind of the fun stories um that on both tours where where does this tournament rank in sort of in terms of the sports landscape of the cincinnati area like how big how big of a i don't know if you can if it compared to Xavier basketball or something more directly, but where does it sort of fit into this sort of makeup of the sports consciousness, I guess, in this area? Is it it a big thing, or is it more of a, a, you know, the the hardcore tennis fans who get it, and I guess from around the Midwest region, I know people travel here, too. Yeah, I think it's a Midwest region But it's not something that really really captures the attention of the city this week? I don't know. That's a great question. I think it's more of a regional and beyond tournament um, for people to be able to come and see everyone here at this site. But Cincinnati, I mean, based on the readership and what people have said they want to read for us, I don't know that the tennis tournament ranks up at the top. Um, That said, we still try and cover it as much as we can because it's a global, we have a global audience. It's a huge tennis tournament. It's a very big deal. For a level of this tournament, I think definitely Mason is like the sort of most obscure place yeah. that, that one of the Masters tournament winds up and even Cincinnati is a smaller city than most of the Master City 
places. So yes, I, I guess people probably hopefully appreciate that usually you get Federer and Serena and even the dependence is a little down this year from the Olympics. Right. Usually you have all the best players in the world posting up here. Right. It seems like in the people that do come here um, that are locals, there are a great deal of them. They come back. I mean, they're not just here one time and don't come back. I mean, not to be like I'm touting the tournament and being yeah. their PR person, but there's so much to do here and it's a great alternative to, you know, to, to you know, deal with the Reds and Bengals because yeah. You know, we have that all the time, and they last forever. So We get used to in tennis sort of the, the, the rhythms of tennis media, like players, you know, playing a match, then not coming into press for an hour yeah. or more sometimes. I mean, somebody who covers other sports, how much getting used to does the whole the, the processes of, of tennis, you know, having to request interviews, things like that, how much just – that take getting used to this it's week. different but it's I mean I'm, I'm used to it now having yeah. done it for so long and I, I will say that tennis athletes are so different than other athletes I, I find that they're very well spoken and thoughtful not everyone and not every time yeah but they're able to deal with losses very well because they just think I mean everyone loses every week, yeah, yeah exactly so you don't get a lot of people snapping at you I mean there's been certain instances over the last few years when people have been kind of you know, gruff, but for the most part, they're very, they understand it, they get it, they get asked questions all the time, and they're, I'm sure they've had tons of dumb questions asked them, and I even have, hear them, and they handle them very gracefully for the most part, and I, I just, that's impressive to me. I mean, it's just different. I don't, I've never experienced that in any other sport, any other level. No, and and that's cool. the, I guess I do most of the time, so it's, it's different than what you get whether in college basketball or yeah. some of the pro sports here. Right, it's yeah. very different. I mean, you, you know, especially I deal a lot with, you know, 18 to 22-year-old kids, so yeah. it, and it's just a difference in um, just, you know, background, upbringing, and all that kind of stuff. It's just it's neat. I like it. Yeah. What, are your, what are your other favorite things about covering this week? Is there anything particular you like about this change of pace for yourself? I just liked, uh, you know, to see, to ask questions to Nadal and, and Federer if he was here. Or Murray. I mean, to see these people up close is really neat. And I don't get starstruck because I've been doing this for, you know, I've been in the business for about 18 years. Yeah. So it's not something that I get, you know, really am like, oh, wow, they're so-and-so. But, I, you know, you, there is a certain coolness when Roger Federer walks in the room. And, you know, again, he's just very patient and graceful with his questions and answers. So that's really cool. And I think, you know, again, I, I think the tournament does a great job. It's very well run and they're very accommodating. And so they try and help you as much as they can. And I feel like that's very helpful to me. So that's enjoyable. And I enjoy that there's a fridge that has Diet Coke in it. Like there anytime and get a drink to, and it's just great. The media, the media snack situation in Cincinnati is pretty solid, definitely. Is for it? For sure. Compared to the rest of yeah, you have free sodas, free there's always like grapes and like cookies yes. and things and it's bananas, yeah. bagels, yeah. yeah. Keep us well fed. Which yes. means keep us happy. No to other tournaments. Thank you very much, Shannon. That was great. Thank you. So that is Shannon. We have a link to her Twitter in the episode description here so you can follow her along this weekend if you care about Xavier basketball and her other beats the rest of the year. I'm sure she'll appreciate the love then too. Uh, thank you guys very much for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining from Cincinnati, one of our favorite places. We've been to Applebee's briefly once mm-hmm. so far. Uh, probably definitely happening again. Obvious. Obvious. Uh, but a lot of other food choices on the side have changed. We've got to rework what our strengths are. The milkshakes are still still, still tasty, still popping. I did I did have a Grater's strawberry milkshake today, and then I also had two Coney Island Skyline hot dogs. Ugh, I'm in heaven. I'm so good right now. <laughs> ben can attest. I've been perfectly happy all day. <laughs> you really have nothing cranky at all. Just keep us fed. That's what that's what Shannon said in the interview too. Just keep sports fed, and we'll be happy. Uh, and with that in mind, you can keep us happy by following along 
by feeding us with your likes on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. Follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Individually, Courtney is at 40 twits and at WTA underscore insider. And I'm at Ben Rothenberg. You can also send us questions for upcoming shows. No challenges remaining at gmail.com. We've gotten questions about postcards. Those are still en route to people. Definitely people in the U.S. We have not sent many of them. Transoceanic sending did not always work in, in Australia, so we wanted to try to preserve that. They all are still coming. Have some here in the hotel. They you will, will be, all get them. They, they are them. coming. We promise. They are coming. They are coming. Uh, and people who are getting them include our Kickstarter backers, our executive producers, Pancho Resendez of TennisBoss.com and Tao Woolley. If you haven't subscribed to the show on a podcast app, we recommend that. Podcasts app on iPhone makes life easier. You get stuff delivered automatically. You can listen to them like I do while you're walking around catching Pokemon, which is great. Talked to a bunch of players. Naomi Osaka had the saddest Pokemon story. Did I tell you this? No. I, I talked because I, I, she had quoted Pokemon song um, when we did an interview. Like before, this was like again. I a remember thing that. Yeah. In in Australia, so I like I was sure she was fine. So I went up to ask her, and she like had been at level nineteen, which is really good. I'm at twenty two, uh, but then like there was an update of the game like a week ago. And like she couldn't log back into her account to start over, and I was like, "Oh, I'm sorry." And I must have looked so sad that she felt like it made like horrible. She was like, "It's okay." It's okay. <laughs> so yeah, so I felt her pain. Um, yeah, a lot of the young players playing quite a bit. Yeah, so there's a Pokestop right on center court. It's always lower. It's great. Highly recommend. And spoiler: the Poke situation at the U.S. Open is great. If you guys are on the fence about going, you should go. How do you know that? I've seen some inside intel about the landscape at, at Flushing Meadows. I, probably should, I don't know if I should even say that, but I just know I was going to be determined should not be mad at me because it looks great. It's great for the players, though, because they, like, travel. So, like, they get to get some, like, rad-ass I wanted, to, I wanted to ask, I, I know, like, I talked to Taylor Fritz about it, and he was really excited about getting to go to Asia because they're, like, Asia exclusives and Australia exclusives. I, I wonder if Kyrgios has been back to Australia since the game came out. I'm not sure. If he already has uh, Kangakon or whatever the, the Australian kangaroo type one is. Courtney's being a sport with this with this with this, with this segment. Um, so yeah, so uh, do you have a rant, Rave, before we let you go? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, if you haven't seen the John Oliver uh, uh, journalism journalism thing. piece, definitely. Uh, it really builds off Spotlight well. It builds it off like, Spotlight. It like almost should have come out when Spotlight came out, yeah. but yeah. But just in general, just of like kind of the state of journalism and tronk. And uh, all of this uh, sort of nonsense and stuff, you know, I mean, I obviously I've, I've worked in the media side in terms of the reporting side with SI. Now I'm with the, the WTA, which is a little bit more of a hybrid sort of situation because I, I obviously work for the tour. Um, but it's there's definitely so much of the stuff that they that he kind of talked about that, like, I could, I mean. It resonates. Yeah, it resonates. And, like, we've talked about it even internally of oh, just yeah. kind of like, you know. Um, yeah, like, you know, press rooms getting more empty. And what does that mean? Like, and what happens when, you know, uh, tours consolidate uh, or federations or whoever start to consolidate or tournaments? Like, we've seen this everywhere where everybody's starting to try to control narrative. their message and, yeah. their mes- and their narrative and kind of like, you know, uh, handcuffing, not handcuffing, that's overstating it, but... but and which you've been personally, I mean, not that you're like, you control the message, but you are part of this escape that right. is more internal. Right. Yeah. I'm on the internal you're side. Of, you're part of a, a huge wave. For sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like in terms of like, and, and that's not a good thing that, it, you know, if we take it from the local reporter kind of thing, it's like we, you do need journalists like on the ground at tournaments, you know, um, um, keeping everybody in check. You really do. And, and I say that as somebody from an internal side, you know, but I, I think that it applies everywhere um, to, to, you know, yeah, every governing body and everything. So, yeah, but, so I would recommend that. Um, and then also, all week, I have been, uh, oops, sorry, 
uh, listening to, although I'd actually kind of want to buy the book and also read it once I'm done listening to it, but it's great, is um, a, a book by Sarah Vowell called called Lafayette and the Somewhat United States. Okay. Um, Sarah Vowell, who used to do reporting for This American Life, who was the voice of the daughter in The Incredibles, was I a love great her voice, voice, by the way. I love her voice, which is why I bought the book Audiobook, on Audible. Yeah. Because she, I was like, oh, she narrates it? I'm going to re- listen to that. Actually, I just, I also, this is going to sound really condescending or something, so I'm not really shouldn't even say it, but I like just watching her talk in person because she's like this really small, adorable person. Yeah. And so I just think that she's, yeah. She's, she's like, she's, she's like, she's Daria. She's yeah. like, in my, in my heart, she's like real life Daria. Um, probably not as dark, but like yeah. she kind of still has like a little bit. But that it. same sort of incisiveness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, she's written tons of books that have always, I've read um, and have loved the Partly Cloudy Patriot um, is one of them. Um, anyways, a few that are all about American history. And so this one is about uh, General Lafayette, the Revolutionary War yeah, stuff. Revolutionary War stuff, French guy who fought with the, with the Americans in the Revolutionary War. And it's specifically about him, but it's about the American Revolution in, in those early days. But um, about uh, like 10 chapters in, really love it. The audiobook is great. She's very flat. She's very Sarah Vowell. So you have to really be engaged because she, her voice, infl- she has no voice inflection. So it's never like a, da, 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 like it's just real flat. But it's a really interesting book. It's very funny. Um, General Washington is uh, voiced by Ron Swanson, which is tremendous. <laughs> It's so American. It's just like it's 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 great, and you know a lot of guest vocalists like doing some old American uh, um, uh, you know figures. But yeah, it's been wonderful. I've enjoyed it, so highly recommend it. Mine will also be sort of a history lesson type rant, rave, rave. Um, I drove here through West Virginia with Tamani Carroll riding along, and went through Appalachia, and there were all these sort of plaques along the road. About like historic things that have happened there. And that's an interesting part of the world because it's like it was part of the ba- the boundary for the Confederacy and Union, and West Virginia split off because they didn't want slavery. So that's a kind of a cool thing for them, even if you wouldn't know that always by their current political climate <laughs> yeah. there and all the Confederate flags you see, which is just like, dudes, you guys were like absolutely not about this. What are you doing? This is not your heritage. Your heritage was not that. Anyway, reading plaques is like, which is I know they talk about not percent visible is a good thing to do. It's something I've gotten better at doing through the Pokemon because they're all. Mm-hmm like, all marked. I think I might have mentioned this before, but just, like, if you have a chance, if you're, especially if you're in a big city or even a small town that just has, like, a sign saying something that usually just breeze right past, just stop and look at it because you'll notice all sorts of cool things. There's a there's a cool park sort of in my neighborhood, but not really, in D.C. called Meridian Hill Park, which I've, like, it's a great for Pokemon. A lot of Pikachu there. You should go. Um, and this is just a way for you to talk about Pokemon. Pretty much. No, but, but, like, I've noticed all these things. There's, like, a big statue to... James Buchanan is like his like official memorial. He was our worst president. Mm-hmm. He like kind of let a civil war happen. He also probably this is not about him being the worst, but he was probably like the, the clearly the gayest president. He was the only bachelor president and had his <laughs> close friend who he lived with, but he also sucked as president, so the gays aren't excited about this. Anyway, just look at things. Notice the world around you, and it's written there, and it's cool. Like nine percent invisible does this a lot, and you'll mm-hmm. see they have things that are just like this used to be. The place where all the world's ice came from. Like, yeah. What? You just wouldn't know. Well, the thing is about that, too, is that um, one of the best days that I've had in 2016, and there haven't been many, one of the best days, and I remember it so crystal clearly, is that I was covering the Sydney tournament, and um, that day my flight was supposed to leave for Melbourne late, so I took off and went down to um, Sydney Harbor. Mm-hmm. And I was walking around, and I was, you know, I walked down to the opera house and whatever, and was just kind of futzing around. And I started walking, and I looked down, and they had these, like, bronze circles, like, in the ground. 
Um, and I started to read them, and they were all just quotes about Australia from like authors. And they just oh, and poets and, and stuff. I think I've seen and poets. Yeah, I, I, I put yeah, I put them up on 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 Snapchat. Or not, Snapchat. <laughs> what the fuck am I talking about? Uh, <laughs> Instagram. Uh, on the gram. But yeah, they just like line the whole, um, there's one like every like 20, 15, 20 feet. And I just spent the whole afternoon walking, reading everyone, kind of thinking about them. And they were really interesting because they were a lot about Australian history and, you know, the founding of Australia. Not and we know much about it. Not, as, not at all. Yeah. And, and about kind of uh, the battle for the soul of Australia, you know, uh, and a lot of stuff about kind of you know, the Aboriginals and, and, and also just, um, you know, Britain and, yeah, what Australians wanted themselves to be. when the, and So it was super fascinating. But, yeah, I mean, just don't stare at phones all the time. The history is there for you. It's... Or do stare at phones like Pokemon. <laughs> It'll get you from historic place to historic place. Great compromise <laughs> if you want best of both worlds. I will add a uh, rant into your past rave that came off of this Sidebar, which you'll see happening it's like here. An inception of right, it's going to be inception because you mentioned Snapchat, mm. which brings me back to Leslie Jones, mm. who has been doing all these videos on Twitter that have been going viral, and she got herself to Rio, and it's been a lot of fun. People have loved her. What she's doing is essentially Snapchat content. It's ten second long videos of her showing emotions, but because she put them on. Twitter, which is this lasting medium, they've engaged and blown up in this way that I just don't think Snapchat would have happened this way. And she might be, I don't think she's cross-posting them. She might be, but I don't, I don't think know. so. And it just shows that Twitter is a great place for putting any sort of content, and just the Snapchat is not the place. Because stuff goes away, and if it goes away, it probably wasn't worth sharing in the first place. If you, if you don't want it to last, it wasn't worth sharing in the first place. And this goes also the other direction of, you know, if you want something to disappear because you're afraid of being embarrassed by it, if you're, you know... You know, yeah, like, you know, odd, you know, embarrassing photos or incriminating photos, whatever you want to call them, or something you're proud of but you don't want the world to see. Just don't put it on the internet. That's don't don't thing, think don't like, think that Snapchat is is I don't I just think there's no content that Snapchat is the best way to share. I just don't that's get all it. I and, say. The, and 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 there was a part of me that sometimes thinks that I think this way because I'm a writer. Yeah. Okay. Because like we write, like we and, we're constantly trying. Like, and I our mean, words, the goal is to and it's, that things stick. And it's our e egotistical, but our words sort of stick. And I think about that when I write, especially when I do write for the New York Times, which is a lot. But that you're writing, you know, we sort of say with a paper, paper of record. record yeah. And so I want somebody to be able to go back in you know seventy years of some PhD student at you know University of you know I don't know. Uh, Guam State University once it comes to state who knows what the fuck the world will look like in 70 years <laughs> we'll be able to do a story about like you know the rise of Tamea Bachinsky and we'll see this story that was like the you know a story that defined her at that point yeah. and even Twitter Twitter hopefully will be archived yeah. I hope the internet's archived well That's a, I've read an article about that like well, well, back or whatever, but I hope all this lasts in some way. We're supposed to be going into the Library of Congress I hope so that's what I've heard but like but, but yeah but the Snapchat is anti- history and it's Which just again, so ephemeral if, in this way that I just don't really But that's to. the thing about it with Snapchat is that like I totally agree with you obviously a hundred thousand percent but then and so if that's what you want out of your social media is to have this very like ephemeral temporary thing where you can just pop and not feel the consequences of the things that you say or do or take pictures of which I don't know. I kind of feel like that is a whole well, just, secondary just, level of commentary. Well, just the, about ba just the bar for I follow. I have Snapchat. You don't have Snapchat. I have Snapchat. I follow some friends on Snapchat, and do respect to my friends guy. on Snapchat. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> socks guy. Also, about <laughs> Ben, you need to stop putting other Ben. You need to put, stop putting your socks on. On he doesn't do that anymore. Thankfully, <laughs> well, I kind of miss them now. Uh, <laughs> but just like there are photos of things that just like would never make the bar 
for other social media. Like, wouldn't, like, you know, Instagram used to get mocked for being people, you know, putting photos of their dinner. But, like, Snapchat is, like, all that. Yeah. It's well, like Instagram has also morphed into being kind of a very visual medium that it is really, like, at least, I don't know. Performative. Yeah, yeah, performative, and you're trying to take good pictures. It's not just, like, random Which blurry I do shit. On Instagram. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I do it, too. And, and But there will be pictures that I realize, like, are not good enough for Instagram, and I'll just put them on Twitter. Or put them on my Facebook, yeah. depending on what the, the, the audience is. Um, but I will also say, going off of yours very, very quickly, about the whole um, ephemeral nature of Snapchat and about how we hope that Twitter is archived and we hope and when we write things, we want them to be remembered. Yeah. We don't want them to be disappeared or whatever. Think before you tweet. If you tweet something and then you, like, as people who tweet things and serially delete them, I have such an issue with. It bothers me to such a basic level because I'm just kind of like, just think about it. Like, I tweet a lot of stupid shit, but I, I assure you that I've thought through every single thing that I've tweeted. Very rarely have I tweeted something and deleted it for reasons that weren't related to inaccuracy. I just do it for typos, usually. Yeah, typos. Or, or complete inaccuracy. Right, yeah. complete inaccuracies where it's like, oh, shoot, like, okay, I found some seven, information out. Or it was like 7-5 in a tiebreak, not 7-5. Right, a typo, definitely, or else something's factually inaccurate to the point where it could cause... If it's factually inaccurate and I'm just wrong, I'll leave it up because I'll just... It, unless... I know that it's going to cause mass confusion. Yeah, that's what I, then I kill it. Like so, it's kind of like I'll own up to my mistakes and I'll let you rip on me for my mistakes. But don't burn forever. somebody and then delete it. That's right. Just that's the, that's what I mean. It's like burning insults, shitty jokes that you're like, oh, that was like insulting to somebody, and then I delete it. It's like, just stop and think. Just stop also and think. Also, the internet won't forget it. Yeah. Just just stop and think. Yeah. And and people take screen grabs anyway. So. That's that's my thing. Is that like I'm all about like the permanence of words, whether you put them on paper or in a digital medium, or in a podcast, or in a podcast. I stand by stuff that I say. If I don't, then I will put up the red flag and wave it and say like, you know what, that was my bad and I screwed up. But weirdly, I kind of do a lot of thinking about the things that I say and do. <laughs> so, which many people don't think is true. But yeah, the, just serial deleters. Just maybe stop and. And check yourself before you wreck yourself and realize that, like, if you've been deleting a ton of things because they offend people or because they were, like, unsourced or, like, whatever, I think maybe you need to revisit what you do. And with that, we will stop this reception that went on forever. Here's some Puerto Rican music. Bye, guys. <laughs> she bangs. She bangs. <laughs> I think I actually will do yeah, that. Yeah, you should. <laughs>